All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17 this evening. That's 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. Uh, obviously, we are continuing our study, uh, or rather not study, our break from studying the Gospel of Mark, uh, looking at various texts for maybe it's still a few more weeks after this. Uh, and tonight we come to what I would call an instance um, of the Apostle Paul reflecting on God's grace toward him and a summary of the gospel for everyone. Um, now I personally am coming up on 10 years next month since I became a Christian. Uh, 10 years since our Lord Jesus Christ ran me down in sovereign grace and saved me. Um, and in this passage, um, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, this passage has been something of like a life verse for me. Right, and like in true David Dowdy fashion, it's not going to be one verse, it's going to be many verses, right, for a life verse. But this, is, this has been a text that's always stuck out to me, right? The Apostle Paul's story of his conversion, how he was formerly a horrible, wicked man and an enemy of Christ and his church, but nevertheless was a man who Christ graciously saved. Paul's story has always resonated with me, and I know that it does uh, for some of you uh, here as well. As many of you know, I was formerly an atheist. I frequently harassed and mocked Christians. Um, I was a horrible blasphemer. Um, I distinctly remember telling a Christian at one point in college um, that if I could take a time machine back to 33 AD and drive the nails in Jesus' hands, I would go back and do it myself. I hated Jesus Christ. I hated his church. But nevertheless, the Lord saved me. By his grace, he saved me. And I've always felt like Paul's story is my story, except Paul's is much bigger and much more significant. I'm not trying to compare myself to the apostle. His story is much more significant than mine ever will be. But in light of all that, I, I say that to say this. This text in 1 Timothy has been rattling around in my head for the last couple of weeks. Um, again, coming up on 10 years next month, it's been on my mind. It's been something I've meditated on a bit in my own personal time of devotion. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to share with you the beauty of the grace of God, the beauty of the salvation given in Christ, and the hope for sinners that's expounded on in this passage where Paul reflects upon his own conversion. It's a really simple text, um, but it's one of the most powerful examples and declarations of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ found in the entire Bible. I texted Pastor Steve this past week and said, this text is 100 proof gospel. Right, This text is gospel and it's strong. But I think it's going to be good for us to reflect on and consider the simple truth of this text. That truth is that Jesus Christ shows grace and mercy to sinners, even the worst sinners. Even the worst. And we would all do well to remember that. We would all do well to see a bit of ourselves in the Apostle Paul by the time that this is said and done. We would all do well to remember what we once were and how Christ showed us mercy, lest we become self-righteous in our hearts and begin to believe that some people are beyond saving. Especially now, with enemies of Christ and his church on the march in our country, we need to be reminded that Jesus can save literally anyone. We need to remember that. Write that down. Literally, I mean that. Literally anyone. Nobody is beyond hope if the Lord Jesus decides to intervene for them. 
And that means that despite how wicked a man may be, there is always hope for him that he might be one to Christ and become a shining example of the perfect patience, mercy, and grace of our Lord. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. The Apostle Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our great God and King, we bow before you now and we humbly ask that you would bless us by the means of your word and spirit. Grant by your grace that your spirit would work mightily among us this evening and open our hearts and minds to understand and receive the word that was just read. Let your word cut like a knife in our hearts so that the cancer of self-righteousness and pride might be removed and stitch us back together with that same word that points us to our beloved Savior who came into the world to save sinners. Teach us, sanctify us, grow us, purify us, have mercy on us and bless us. We ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, some, uh, some context here. Right, this passage doesn't just drop out of the sky. Uh, our, our text this evening comes to us from a letter written from the Apostle Paul to the pastor Timothy. Uh, Timothy was a friend and companion of the Apostle. Paul even calls him his son in the faith. Uh, and Timothy, the pastor, had a bit of a problem on his hands. Uh, you see, in the church in Ephesus, where Timothy was pastor, a group of false teachers had begun to plague the church. And they were perverting the gospel with some form of legalism. And you can see that from the opening 11 verses in this letter. Um, and so Paul writes to Timothy to help him and remind him of the necessity of protecting and preserving the message of the gospel against those false teachers. And in verse 11, as Paul's talking about these false teachers, he mentions this in verse 11, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And this phrase, right, considering the gospel and how God has made Paul an apostle and entrusted Paul with this message of salvation, this phrase prompts Paul to erupt with praise and thanksgiving about how kind Christ has been to him. It causes him to erupt and give a personal testimony to Christ's grace and then give a summary statement of the whole gospel message. And uh, this is something Paul actually does from time to time. Right? I heard one preacher say Paul was a hair-trigger worshiper. Right? Uh, many times throughout his letters, he'll just burst into a doxology. He'll just burst into a word of praise. He can't hold it in. 
He can't hold in his gratitude to God. Um, and that's what we see here. And that's where we begin in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul begins this section by giving thanks and praise to Christ, who has by his grace, all of this is by grace. Paul's laboring that throughout the whole rest of this passage. All by grace, Christ has strengthened him, that is, enabled him, and entrusted him to be a minister and apostle of Christ. By grace alone, Paul was made an apostle, and by grace alone, Paul was made faithful to receive the weighty responsibility of preaching and apostleship. Uh, I want to be clear, it's not because Paul was strong in his unconverted state. It's not because Paul was faithful in his unconverted state. He was evil in his unconverted state. It's by grace that Paul was made these things. Right? He's praising Christ for his grace. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what Paul's saying here at the beginning. He's expressing his gratitude for what Jesus has done because, as we'll see shortly, only Christ could have changed Paul. Only God could have changed Paul. And it probably goes without saying, but I, I, I need to say this. Uh, with this thankfulness of apostleship, or for apostleship, Paul's also thanking Christ for saving him. Right? The rest of our passage shows this very clearly. Paul would have never been made an apostle unless Christ first saved him and made him a Christian. Right? There's kind of an order to these things. Uh, and Paul's praising Christ for all of his gracious work. Right? So Paul is essentially saying from the beginning, he's, he, rather he is beginning by saying, thank you Jesus for what you've done for me. I thank him, Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? Thank you, Jesus, for how you've changed me. He is always in awe that Jesus saved him and appointed him to such service. And let me just say this right out of the gate. We should all always start right here with Paul. We should begin with praise and thanksgiving to Christ for all that he's done. We should be people who are only ever a breath away from erupting into praise and glad tears of joy and gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done for us. Every morning when we wake up, our first thought should be, along with the apostle, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. That should be the first thought that each of us have every day. And listen, there are no apostles today, right? But every person who has been born again has indeed been enlisted into Christ's service. Right? We've been made into his people. We've been called and saved so that we might serve him in joy and gladness all the days of our lives. And we ought to be very conscious of that every single day. We should always stand amazed at the grace of Christ toward us. So may God help each of us to make our first and last thoughts of each day. I thank him, Christ Jesus our Lord, for all that he's done for me. We should be a people of gratitude. Because in grace upon grace, Christ has been kind to every single one of us that names the name of Christ. Everyone here has been born again. Christ has been immeasurably kind to you. He saved you. Our, his praise should always be on our lips. But why is Paul thanking Christ specifically in this passage? Right? It's always a good thing to do. But what's on Paul's mind as he reflects on how much Jesus has done for him? Verse 13 tells us. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. In light of what Paul used to be, Paul is praising Christ. 
Now, many of you already know Paul's story pretty well, uh, so I'm just going to give a, a brief overview of it here. Before becoming a Christian, Paul was an absolute monster. Despicable. A horrible, horrible man. He hated Christ, and he hated the church. He was a horrid persecutor of the people of God, and he devoted his life. It is not an exaggeration to say, in light of the things Paul says about himself, Paul devoted his life to the destruction of Christianity. After Stephen was beaten to death with rocks, after Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7 because of his faith in Jesus, we read this about Paul, who was also known as Saul in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And Saul approved of his, Stephen's, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced most of us as Christians whitewash this. Paul burst into people's homes and arrested them in front of their families because they were Christians. The scriptures say he ravaged the church. Paul was a wild animal. We see again in Acts chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any, if he found any belonging to the way, the way was what they called Christianity before we started being known as Christians, that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Whenever Paul exhaled, he breathed out threats of murder towards Christians. So much so, he wasn't just content to try to get them out of Jerusalem. He got letters from officials in Jerusalem so that he could go to foreign cities and persecute Christians. From what I've read, Damascus is about a, a week's journey. He was so excited to go and persecute Christians, he was willing to travel a week just to get to Damascus so that he could arrest more Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem. This is a vendetta Paul had. Once again, we read Paul, his own words, in Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was a monster. Paul was a monster. Don't try to church it up. He was an animal. Scripture tells us so. When you think of a hostile man, when you think of a hater of Christ, when you think of an evil man, you should think of Paul. You should think of Paul before he became a Christian. 
At that time, at least, there was no one worse than Paul. There was no greater enemy to Christ and his church than Paul was. And as I said a minute ago, let's not try to clean up history. Paul arrested, abused, and delivered over to death many men and women. He ripped godly fathers and mothers away from their children so that they would go and be killed in Jerusalem for their faith in Christ. He would enter homes while Christians were unaware and assault and arrest them and take them away in chains. He would abuse Christians and try to force them to blaspheme the name of Jesus. There was blood in the homes and blood in the streets. The saints were imprisoned and murdered for Christ's sake. Husbands and wives were separated. Children left orphans. Good people were killed. Churches were dispersed. Christians were on the run for their very lives, all because of Paul. This was Paul's doing. As Acts 8 says, he was a ravager of the church. An enemy of all that is good and righteous. In our text specifically, Paul says he was a blasphemer. That is, he spoke openly against Christ. He denounced what others said about Christ. He spoke lies about Christ, spoke wickedly about Christ. And notice, Paul doesn't say, I blasphemed. He said, I was a blasphemer. That is, Paul is, if you're going to identify what kind of sinner you used to be, and the first thing that comes to your mind was, I was a blasphemer. This is something you were known for. Paul was known for the horrible, we cannot imagine, I'm sure, the things that Paul said about our Lord Jesus. Paul was known for this. Just as much as he was known as a persecutor of the church, he was known as a blasphemer. You can only imagine these shameful things Paul must have said. He hated Jesus and so he spoke awful things about him. But there's a little bit of beauty here. These are things he now realizes are blasphemy because he now recognizes that Jesus is God. But nevertheless, he blasphemed. He was a blasphemer. Paul also says that he was a persecutor. As we've read already, Paul did much violence to the church. He arrested Christians and voted for their deaths. He held coats for men during Stephen's stoning. He raided homes. There's much blood on Paul's hands. And he was an insolent opponent. Now this word in the originals is interesting and horrible. He was an insolent opponent. Um, the, the original word here refers to one who damages others and finds pleasure in hurting them. One who delights in the pain of other people. One who, and one who is full of pride as they do it. Paul's telling us that he gladly and joyfully brought all kinds of harm to Christians, found pleasure in doing so, and was proud of himself for what he was doing to Christ's people. It's safe to say Paul was a sadist of sorts. He found pleasure in arresting, abusing, and killing Christians. Brothers and sisters, behold the Apostle Paul. How often do you think of Paul like this? This is the man who became our beloved apostle, who would pen a significant portion of the New Testament, plant many churches, be bold as a lion for Christ, and die a martyr's death in his service to the Lord Jesus. But this is who he once was. I think we forget this. Or we move on very quickly over the things that Scripture says about Paul before he became a Christian, and we're so foolish that we sum it up with a naive statement like, well, Paul was mean before he became a Christian. 
right? Or Paul was, wasn't very nice. You know, Paul mistreated Christians. Brothers and sisters, such simple thinking doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of Paul's wickedness. Paul wasn't just, eh, he was a bad guy before, right? right? Like Joe down the street, before he became a Christian, Joe was a pretty bad guy, right? No, Paul wasn't like that. Paul was horrid. This level of wickedness and persecution of the people of God has never been seen in our country. Ever. We've never seen a terrorist against Christianity like Paul in our country. We don't even have a reference point for this in our day, at least for this country. What I'm getting at is that we need to remember this, right, that, that, that there isn't, there isn't anyone in our day who can hold a candle to what Paul did against Christ in the church. We have to remember that. And Jesus Christ saved Paul. Jesus saved Paul. Paul goes on to tell us, verse 13, the second half, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now I want to pause here for a moment. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this phrase, but it is kind of a confusing one that needs addressed. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, I want to be clear, Paul's not making an excuse for his sin here. Right? In fact, in verse 15, he goes on to blatantly say he is the worst sinner. He is the foremost sinner. So he's not making an excuse for his sin. Um, he's not doing anything like that. Rather, Paul is explaining here how he was still a candidate for mercy from Christ, even though he had done such horrible things. Right? Paul's ignorance and unbelief did not merit the mercy of Christ. In fact, you cannot merit mercy. Mercy is not getting what you should get. It's not being punished as you should be punished. You can't earn that, right? That's always given undeservedly, right? So he's not saying he merited Christ's mercy, but here is what Paul's saying. When he says, I received mercy because I sinned in ignorance and in unbelief, he's saying that he did not sin against knowledge when he did all that stuff. Uh, he had not committed the unpardonable sin, which is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. While he was a Pharisee, right, theologically, he was not like the Pharisees who had interacted with Jesus during his earthly ministry, who knew Jesus was telling the truth, had seen his undeniable power and proof of his message displayed in his miracles, but rejected him anyway, right? against all light and knowledge, and blaspheme the testimony of the Holy Spirit. He's not like that. Paul had not committed the unforgivable sin because Paul was in ignorance and unbelief, contrary to those Pharisees and those like him, or like them, who rejected Christ but knew deep down in their hearts that he was the Messiah. Paul really thought he was doing a good thing in God's service as a Jew when he did these things. That doesn't excuse his sin. But it shows that Paul was not rejecting Christ like the Pharisees did who committed the unforgivable sin. And so Paul's main point is that even though he had done awful things, he was still a candidate for mercy. He had not committed the sin that leads to death, 1 John 5. He had not merited mercy, but he was still a candidate for mercy. As evil as he was, he wasn't beyond the pale because of his ignorance and unbelief. One theologian I spoke with says his ignorance and unbelief made him salvageable by Christ's grace. And that's why he said, I received mercy. On the Damascus Road, Christ knocked him to the ground and gave him unmerited mercy. And Paul goes on to say, verse 14, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me 
with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What a mighty and beautiful thing that Paul says here. The grace of our Lord, the grace of Christ came to Paul. Grace, unmerited favor, unearned blessing, undeserved favor, grace. All Paul had earned, clearly. All Paul had earned, all he deserved from the Lord Jesus was to be struck dead in the most humiliating and public way possible and then cast into hell for all eternity. That's what Paul deserved, but that was not God's plan for Paul. Instead, grace abounded for Paul. Grace abounded for Paul. It overflowed for Paul, not by merit, but by mercy. Grace superabounded towards Paul. More than enough grace, right? That's what that means. Grace overflowed for Paul. And it poured out from the heart of Christ toward him. You could put it this way. Jesus Christ had more grace than Paul had sin. As amazing as that is, as awful as Paul had been, grace superabounded for Paul. The grace of Christ, like a mighty waterfall that flows and flows, and the river below cannot contain, but is forced to rush out to the sea, the grace of Christ overflowed toward Paul. And Paul was saved. Paul was saved. He was born again on the road to Damascus by grace alone. Christ looked down tenderly on his enemy the rebel murderer, the insolent, blaspheming persecutor, and in amazing grace, changed him and made him a friend and servant of the Jesus that he hated so much. Paul says that Jesus, by grace, poured out faith and love into him. That's the effect of grace, faith and love. Jesus put faith into Paul's heart so that Paul could savingly believe upon him and receive him as Savior and Lord. Instantaneously, Paul was made a believer in Christ. That's, like, that's why Paul explains that faith is a gift in Ephesians 2.8. He had experienced this gift. Christ's grace poured out towards him, and faith came with it. And Jesus put love into Paul. Love for Christ and love for his people. And Jesus turned Paul into a lover of Jesus and removed all enmity and alienation and hostility that was between them. As John Gill says in his commentary on this, now instead of unbelief, he had faith. And instead of rage and madness against Christ and the saints, his soul was filled to love both. By grace alone, this happened to Paul. I know, solo gratia, right? Like, we all, like, know that, right? We're, like, good, like, reformed people. Like, we write that. You might even have a tattoo for, like, solo. I do. Right? Solo gratia, right? But, like, seriously, see this. What did Paul do to deserve this? What did he do? Name one single thing that Paul could have done to deserve this from Christ. That Christ would have grace that overflows from his heart to, to put faith and love into Paul. That Christ would have mercy upon Paul. What did Paul do to deserve this? Tell me one thing. I dare you. Nothing. Nothing. Paul was saved by grace alone, apart from any works, apart from any merit, apart from any anything. Christ had mercy on Paul and poured out his saving grace and turned the heart of this hateful man into a loving man and this unbelieving man into a faithful man and Paul was made into a Christian. By grace. 
Paul was made into a Christian. Where there was much sin, grace abounded for Paul. And I want you all to know that this is not unique to Paul. This is how every single person who has ever been saved or ever will be saved is saved. It's always by pure grace overflowing from the heart of Christ into the heart of the sinner. It's always the work of Christ from beginning to end. Know this, Christian. I know we know this on paper, but by God's grace we will get this into our heart and it will stay there. Know this. You are only a Christian. You are only saved because of unmerited grace and mercy given to you. In this regard, you are no different than Paul. Christ did not save you because you're not as bad as other people. If you've been a Christian since you were a child, praise God. Christ did not save you because you were a child. Christ did not save you because you were righteous comparatively to your peers. He did not save you because he thought you might be useful to him somehow. You were worthless. You were a pile of trash in a sin-stained gutter, living out your life of rebellion and enmity against Christ. But the grace of our Lord overflowed for you with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's what happened. You're not saved because you're good. You're saved because grace overflowed for you. Every one of you. Comparatively, some of us are worse sinners than others. Some of us do have worse pasts than others. Look at my sister and look at me. Both of us are saved because the grace of Christ overflowed for us. Period. You're saved because Jesus had mercy on you, a sinner. And if you don't believe that's true, then you're not a Christian. Paul is not unique. Paul's particular sins may be unique, but the experience of pure grace is common to all the saints of God. Back to our text. The apostle now turns from speaking of his personal testimony to speaking of a universal truth in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, listen to this. This is a trustworthy statement. Everyone who names the name of Christ needs to accept this and memorize this. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God that Paul referred to in verse 11. This is one of the holiest statements in all of Scripture. I'll go to bat for that. This is one of the holiest statements in the whole book. This is the summary of the gospel. Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the God-man, the King, the one who came to redeem the world, the eternal King of all creation, Jesus, came into the world. He came from heaven assumed a human nature, and came into this sinful world. Christ Jesus came to the place where the curse is, the place where sinners dwell in all their wickedness and sin. The Holy Son of God came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came, to save lawless ones, to save the ones who have offended God, to save those who deserve the wrath of God. To save lawbreakers who will believe upon him. 
He came to save sinners. And he came to save all sorts of sinners, didn't he? And maybe this is the point. Maybe this is the note that needs to ring in some of our hearts. He came to save all sorts of sinners. Murderers, persecutors, and insolent opponents. Prostitutes, pimps, and drug dealers. Religious hypocrites. Soccer moms, teachers, and homeschoolers. Conservatives and communists. Rich and poor. White and black, the religious and the atheist, those raised Christian and those not raised Christian, the educated and the uneducated, the Jew and the Gentile, he came to save sinners. From the -the run-of-the-mill, garden-variety sinners to the most horrible, evil sinners like Paul, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And note this, Jesus came to save only sinners. He didn't come for anyone else. He didn't come for anyone else. He came to save only sinners. Those who would be saved by Christ must see themselves as sinners. And listen, I don't mean this standard American, oh, well, you know, nobody's perfect, so yeah, you know, everyone's a sinner, kind of sinner. No, I mean, you know what you are deep down. You know that you're vile and evil and desperately need Christ to save you, or you have no hope of surviving the judgment of God Almighty. You must know that you are a sinner. Jesus Christ did not come to save people who think that they're righteous or who think that they just need a little bit of help. Jesus only saves sinners. And he came to save sinners. Note this, he did not come to help sinners save themselves. (laughs) He didn't come to give them a boost. He didn't come to, to enable them to save themselves. He did not come to give them the necessary grace and jump start so they could finish the job by themselves. No, the apostle says he came to save them from beginning to end to do all of the work of their salvation. He came to save them. He came to rescue sinners from the guilt of sin, slavery to sin, and punishment for sin. He came to save from the wrath of God, alienation from God, and eternal spiritual death. He came to make men righteous by imputing his righteousness to them, giving freedom to those in bondage. He came to bring sinners into fellowship with God, cause them to love God, and grant them everlasting life. And all of this he accomplished. He was was successful. He accomplished this. In his sinless life of perfect obedience to God, Jesus merited the perfect righteousness before God to give to those sinners who would believe upon him. In his substitutionary death, he suffered the wrath of God due to sinners in their place, and he satisfied the wrath of God on their behalf. And in his glorious resurrection, he rose from the grave, conquering sin, Satan, and death, and offering freedom from it all to whosoever would believe upon him. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he was successful. He actually did it. But then Paul adds something personal after this trustworthy saying. He says, of whom I am the foremost. Of whom I am the foremost. Paul says that of all sinners for whom Christ came to die, he is the worst. The King James, I am the chief. I am chief of sinners. First among sinners. 
And you know, in a sense, this is objectively true. Paul persecuted the church. This is arguably the most sinful and wicked thing a person can do and still be saved. At that point in history, Paul had been the worst sinner ever saved. I think that's safe to say. But this is also true subjectively for Paul. Paul personally viewed himself this way, always. He constantly mentions his unworthiness to be an apostle. He always mentioned that he was the worst and lowest and least worthy of Christ. And notice in verse 15, he says, I am the foremost. Not I was the foremost. He says, I am the foremost. He still considers himself the lowest and most unworthy and worst sinner he knows. And a quick word on this. I think all who have been born again think of themselves this way to some degree. We all say, I am the chief of sinners. Each one of us say to ourselves, I am the worst sinner I know. And that's because we, like Paul, as we grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ and knowledge of ourselves, as we're sanctified, we learn that we are the worst sinners that we know personally because we know more about us than we know about anyone else. As we consider our sin, and I mean really consider the magnitude and depth of our sin and our sinfulness, we're brought to our knees and we acknowledge, I am the foremost of sinners. And that's actually a good place to be. Because when you're that low, that is when you think of yourself rightly, you cling more tightly to Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners. So real quick, let me give you some early application. Look at me. If you can say today, I am a sinner, know that Christ came to live, die, and be raised for sinners. If you find yourself fallen into sin tomorrow, remember, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you find yourself weeks or months or years from now tasting the bitterness of sin and regret and remorse and are overcome with feelings of your true guilt and sinfulness, I want you to remember that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that means he came to save you. Even if you are the foremost among them. Run to him. Cling to him in faith. After all, he is the savior of sinners. You have warrant to go to him. Look to him in faith. Cling tightly to him. But a second thing I want you to see from Paul's statement, I am the foremost sinner. I want you to see this. This is what always grips me about Paul. Paul never forgot. I've said it before. I'm going to say it probably until I die. Paul never forgot. He never forgot what he was before Christ saved him. We don't have time to look at all the texts, but I count, without even trying, honestly, without, without looking for an exhaustive list, just on my own, I count seven times in six different books where Paul mentions who he used to be. They span throughout his life. Acts 22 and 26, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Philippians 3, 4 through 6, Galatians 1, 13, and Ephesians 3, 8. It's all over the place. It was always on Paul's mind. What he was 
and how gracious Christ had been to him was always on the forefront of the apostle's mind. Though he knew better than most that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, though he knew that better than most, he never forgot who he was. He never forgot. And this is why Paul was always so humble. This is why Paul was always so humble. And this is why Paul always had hope for even the worst sinners and opponents of Christ in his church. Paul never forgot who he used to be. So Paul always held out hope for the wicked. He was always humble, always rejoicing, always amazed, always grateful to Christ, always just a breath away from saying, I thank Him, Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength. He was always rejoicing and he was always hopeful for sinners. And please hear me. We cannot forget who we once were or if you were saved as a child, who Christ saved you from being. But by the grace of God, you would have been someone entirely different. Don't ever forget that. But we cannot forget who we once were, lest we become self-righteous men and women who have no hope for the sinners around us. God help us that we never become that. And that leads us into verse 16, where Paul tells us why Christ had mercy on him, the foremost of sinners. Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Christ saved Paul so that Paul would be a living monument, an example of the mercy, grace, love, and perfect patience of Christ. In his perfect patience, Jesus withheld divine wrath from Paul, spared his life, ran him down in grace, and showed mercy to the most wicked man imaginable. Paul was as evil as they come, and Jesus had mercy on him. He was perfectly patient. Out of pure, electing grace, Paul was a horrible sinner, but he was saved by Christ because Christ was able to save him and desired to save him. And was perfectly patient with him. That's the example here. Bottom line, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And he is patient with his elect sinners, even if they are the worst sinners imaginable. And he saves them. Or to put it another way, much more simple way. If Jesus Christ can save Paul, he can save anybody. That's what Paul's saying here. In the most simple terms. He saved me that I might be an example to those who were to believe upon him. If he can save me, he can save anybody. Paul's the prime example of the fact that nobody is beyond the reach of Christ should Christ set his love upon them. Nobody. Ever. I mean that. We need to see that. Nobody. Jesus can save the worst of the worst. And this means that Paul is an example, I think, in two ways. One, he's an example for each of us personally. He's an example for us so that we can know that we have hope in Christ to save us. Paul 
is an example to remind is an example to remind us that we are not so wicked that we are beyond the mercy of Christ. I mean this. Use Paul like this. When you think that you've done too much for Christ to have mercy on you and forgive you yet again, I want you to remember Paul. Paul says this is why Jesus saved him. Paul is the example always of how Christ can save even the worst. So you look to Paul and in looking to Paul, look to Christ. Mercy comes to all who desire it and look to Jesus. Pastor R. Kent Hughes put it this way. Paul calls to us across the centuries. Don't despair. He saved me. He can save you. That's what Paul shouts to us across the ages. Secondly, Paul's an example for us as we consider other sinners. Right, and this might be what we need to hear the most. He's an example so that we might know we can have hope for Christ to save the worst. Did you know that Jesus Christ can save the most stark, raving, mad liberal in the world? I know half of us don't think that's true, but he can. He can save the abortionist, the one who has made a living off of chopping babies to pieces. Jesus can save that man. He can save the transgender person who has shaken their fist at God. God can save the homosexual. Christ can save the feminist. He can save the atheist. He can save the leftist. He can save the whore. He can save the government official who passes legislation against the church. He can save the sheriff who arrests pastors. He can save the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party. He can save Joe Biden. He can save our local city council. He can save the unbeliever at work who mocks you for your faith. He can save your child who hates him. He can save your spouse who hates him. He can even save the religious hypocrite who sits in the pew each week. If Jesus can save Paul, he can save anyone. So let me ask you, do you ever look at the enemies of Christ today in our country and ask yourself, I wonder which one of them might be the next Paul? Do you ever look at these wild-eyed protesters in their early 20s and say, I wonder which one of them might be the next great minister of the gospel? I wonder which one of them might grow up to be a godly mother who raises their kids to know Christ. Do you ever look at the enemies of Christ in our day and say, which one might be the next Paul? Because if you don't ever ask yourself that question, then you don't understand the gospel that Paul preached. And you don't understand what Jesus did for Paul. And furthermore, you don't even understand what Jesus did for you. But all of this reflection on what Christ has done for him and what Christ can and will do for others makes Paul burst with praise in verse 17. We're not going to spend much time here. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul cannot contain himself. When he thinks about the great mercy and grace of God shown to him in Christ Jesus, Paul cannot help himself. And so a great doxology, a great word of praise pours out of Paul's mouth 
and onto the page. And this is the heart of everyone who has received grace and mercy in Christ Jesus. We all say, I must praise Him. I must thank Him. I must declare His glory. There is none like Him. He is the only King. He's the only one worthy of my praise and adoration. He is amazing. And we're going to end there. On a note of praise to God for His amazing grace given to us in Christ. So Christian, as I close, praise your God for, your, for personal grace shown to you. Praise God for grace shown to others and have hope for God's grace to be displayed even to the worst sinner like it was for Paul. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for your word that's been passed down through the ages that instructs us, that shows us the gospel, that shows us the truth. 